0: Well, a couple of weeks ago when we were last here together, we were continuing to look at biblical manhood and womanhood, and uh, we talked much last time about how men and women serve in the church, and so we dealt with complementarianism and egalitarianism and the differences therein and the importance of women, how they can serve biblically in a godly way in the local church. So today we're going to do part two of that. And we're going to look at several passages as we do so. So one of those, if you'll turn to 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 3, we're going to look briefly today at the qualifications of an elder. And so uh, this is a, an office, the office of elder, that is reserved uh, for men, and we'll look at that today and why that is. Um, I would say even if, uh, as we look at that as as men, and you men out there that are not elders, these are still qualities and characteristics that are godly to have as a godly man. So 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. We see in this passage that it is indeed noble for a man to desire to be an overseer, which would be an elder, a pastor. We also see that he must be a husband. Look at that, the husband of one wife. So I'm really not sure how the egalitarians interpret this passage. I mean, it's a husband of one wife, not a wife of a husband, right? And so anyway, uh, he must also be controlled, have a sober mind, be respectable, hospitable, able to teach, having a gentle disposition, not a drunkard or one who will quarrel. And so we want elders who will promote peace and purity in the church. In fact, the sixth ordination vow the elders must answer in the PCA is this. Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? It's important that elders do that. Now, Blake Boylston suggests there are also four main parts of the job description for the elder as outlined in Scripture. Now, follow me as we go through this because we're going to actually relate it back to Genesis, okay, here in a moment. So, first, elders provide. And what do they provide? They provide for the church through biblical teaching. We read in Titus one nine that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Timothy would say, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, 1 Timothy 4.13. So specifically in the PCA, it's the teaching elder who is to devote his work to the ministry of the Word, and that's often from the pulpit. It's also the ruling elder, though, who should be able to teach, should be able to teach, perhaps in a form like Sunday school or Bible studies, but he should also be able to minister the Word uh, to those in his flock, to those in his care, to those that are on their sick bed. But secondly, the elder is also to protect. And what is he to protect the church from? Well, specifically from falsehood. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions, Second Timothy 4.3. How does an elder respond to that? Well, Second Timothy 4.2 says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Titus would put it this way in Titus 1.9, uh, or Paul would, rebuke those who contradict it. So false teachers were prevalent in the early church, Uh, But how much more so are they today? Uh, Often it's seen on on, on the TV with televangelism, not all the time, but certainly some of those. We think of those who teach uh, health, wealth, and prosperity, uh, that God will bless you financially and with good health if you just believe, and oh, don't forget to give to the ministry, right? Uh, Oftentimes the health, wealth, and prosperity is, you have the word gospel after it, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Um, I don't even like to include the word gospel with it because there's no gospel in that health, wealth, and prosperity message, we could say. It's actually a false gospel. And the elder is to protect the church from that. Well, thirdly, the elder is to lead, to lead the church. Certainly one way of doing that is by example. 1 Peter 5.3 says about pastors and elders, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Paul writes in Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Let me go back to the membership vows we take in the PCA. The fourth one has to do with this very example of modeling. The elders should model. Do you accept the office of ruling elder or deacon as the case may be in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example a worthy example before the church of what of which God has made you an overseer And this means that that elders as we strive by the grace of the Holy Spirit to live as becomes children of God, but also to model that to others, what a humble calling that is. It's very, very humbling. And we should, as elders, be serious about our own sanctification, putting off, putting on, including mortifying those sins that so easily ensnare and entangle. Well, fourth, the elder is to bear responsibility before God. Bear responsibility before God for the well being of the church. As Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, we submit to the elders of the church because they keep watch over our souls as those who will give an account. So the elders not only to give an account for his own life, but also for those that he is shepherding. Because of this weighty responsibility, I would just humbly say we need to pray. ...for the elders of the church. What a humble and weighty responsibility it is. And, but notice, let me take this back to Genesis for a moment. Notice the pattern in looking at these four characteristics of godly elders. Provide, protect, lead, bear responsibility. Where have we heard that before? Back in the Genesis account, right? These characteristics were given to Adam... They weren't given to Eve in the garden, but they were given to Adam. And this is the reason why we spent so much time earlier in the fall just laying the foundation and the groundwork for God created man. What does that mean? What is his responsibilities? God created woman. What are her responsibilities? Because it plays out, it fleshes out what God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis. It comes to life, so to speak, even with us today as we live out our roles in a godly way in the home, and in the church. But I would ask you to continue to pray that God would give us elders here in the church, at Second Presbyterian Church, that not only fit the biblical qualifications that are outlined here, but also have a heart, a true heart for shepherding the people of God and for building up the church. I had a conversation uh, a few years ago with a longtime ruling elder who had served here for decades as a ruling elder. And one of the things he said to me is, We need to pray that God would give us elders in our church that have a heart for the people. And then he said, Not just businessmen. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a businessman. But if you have a businessman and you're only focused on the particulars of governance or finance or whatever the case may be, and you don't have a real heart for the people of God and for shepherding the people of God, and for loving the people of God, and for being with the people of God, then something's wrong. So let us pray, continue to pray that the Lord would continue to give us men who will serve well in this capacity. Well, in continuing to look at serving in the church, let's look at two other key passages that show how the roles of men and women, women differ in the church. So turn to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, we're going to look at verses 8 through 15. Beginning in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. A lot of ink has been spilled over these verses. Uh, But let's dive into this just just for a moment. And there's really four observations that we want to make. Okay? The first is let's just get the context Of false teaching in Ephesus. Secondly, we'll look at the call to submissiveness more briefly, since we've talked about it before. Uh, Three, two restrictions for women, but then we'll also look at fourthly why those restrictions. So first, the context for Paul's writing in 1 Timothy. The church in Ephesus, which had been pastored by Timothy, had been under attack primarily by false teachers. In the first part of 1 Timothy 1, Paul deals with this directly. 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The third verse in this letter, he deals with false teaching. That's how prevalent it was in the church in Ephesus. The false teachers had come uh, specifically to sway the minds of the people. And it seems to be, based on the context of these verses in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, what we just read, that one of the targets was the vulnerable, including young widows. These false teachers had been influencing these women in the church to live ungodly, lives. And then he addresses modesty. So what's the relationship with their? Well, they were encouraging ungodly lives that then affected the way the women dressed. So we see in verse 9 that Paul encourages women to dress modestly. Why is this? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but primarily uh, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, right? Of the the Holy... uh, temples of God, excuse me, and so we need to dress in a way that would glorify God. Also, because immodest dress has the risk of drawing hearts and minds away from the gospel to divert attention to oneself and divert it away from the gospel. Also, think about this, that you as ladies are showing the next generation of ladies, right? Uh, Those, particularly in their teen years or younger years, how to dress and what godly femininity looks like. So Paul is saying, rather than it being immodest, have proper dress. But then also, as it says in verse ten, do good works. Do good works, and by doing that, a woman can have wonderful, godly and gospel influence in the lives of those around her, including. Her church family. One commentator writes Deeds trump decoration for women who profess to worship God. Deeds trump decoration. And of course, these are deeds that the Lord Jesus Himself has prepared beforehand that you would do, right, for all of us. But as we could apply it to these verses as well for women. Now we see in verse 11 that Paul warns women, or excuse me, wants women to learn, but should do so quietly. To do so quietly and with submission. This continues with one of the roles of the godly woman that we've talked about before, and that of submissiveness. Paul wants the women to learn the context of a local church, but to have a trustful posture, we could say, of the leadership that God has established. This verse does not mean that a woman will remain quiet and always be quiet. There's great value In listening to the wisdom of women. But what he's speaking of here is that it's a quiet, submissive posture that respects the authoritative teaching and governing role that's assigned to specifically men in the local church. Well, we've seen thus far the context and the call in this particular text to submissiveness, but look at uh, 1 Timothy 2. What are the two restrictions? We touched briefly on this last time, but we see in verse 12 that a woman is not to teach, and we also see that she's not to exercise authority over the man. It does not mean that a woman cannot teach at all. It just means that a woman cannot teach men in the context of this verse. Many women are gifted in teaching, and where do they use that role at? Well, they use it in teaching other women. They use it in teaching uh, children, perhaps. If a woman is gifted in teaching, she should use those gifts in a God-honoring and biblical way. The verse also doesn't mean that women can't encourage men in their speech when they speak of God's goodness in their lives or how God has been teaching them through His Word. This is good and right, for we learn from one another, right? When we have table discussion, uh, even in the context of this class, we want women to contribute to that and speak into the lives of others encouraging them in their faith as well. So the first restriction here deals with women specifically being an authoritative role teaching men. Uh, you know, a study report uh, came out a few years ago. Pastor Phillips touched about on this briefly at the congregational meeting last week. So this committee was formed by the PCA to investigate what women, and whether or not women should be ordained into the office of elder or deacon in the PCA. And they came back and reported, based on Scripture, that women should not be ordained. I was glad for two reasons. One is I do believe it's biblical that women not be ordained to the office of deacon and elder. But secondly, if we say women are to be, that they can be ordained to the office of deacon, then it begins a really slippery slope. Because once you begin ordaining women in the office of deacon, how much longer does it take before they're ordained to the office of elder? Not very long. So here's the thing. We would do best, even though it's hard to receive for some at times, we always do best if we err on the side of what Scripture says, right? We always go back to the fact that God's Word is without error. It's infallible. It's holy. And what He says is a whole lot better than what we say, right? And so what we, our response to that is we receive it as God's holy Word, We rest in it, and we live it out. Well, why? Why are these restrictions in place in this section of verses in 1 Timothy 2? Well, in verse 13, we read that Adam was created first. Adam was created first. He's not saying here that men are first and that women are second. Not at all. We are equal in God's sight. We're equally created in the image of God. What he's saying is that God created man and woman in a particular sequence, which highlights the reality that men and women have different and distinct dispositions and roles. The second reason uh, for the restriction in 1 Timothy is found in verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Well, let me be the first to ask the question, as a man... Was Adam without fault here back in Genesis 3? Of course not. He was not doing what God had given him to do, primarily leading and protecting. And yet it was, as verse 14 says in our text today, it was the woman who became a transgressor and then the husband. Here's the idea. Eve was the serpent's target and she fell prey to his trap. Uh, Blake Boylston writes helpfully, instead of going to Adam, God's appointed leader in the marriage relationship, he went to Eve, putting her in the position of spokesperson, leader, and defender. Remember, Adam and Eve were God's people under God's rule in covenant relationship with one another and with him. And so in Genesis 3, we see a confirming of God's plan for male leadership in the home and in the covenant community of God's people. However, listen to this, very important. Satan wants men in biblical leadership roles to be passive and to be indifferent toward God's commands. And he wants women to come out from under the protection of male leaders in the church so they will no longer so that they too can be deceived. So what's Satan doing there? What's he doing now and what was he doing back then? He was twisting, even back then in the garden, gender roles, going to Eve first. uh, You see what, what was happening there? And he's doing it today. In fact, we see it lived out even more today, do we not, in the context of our culture and how gender roles are just being totally confused. It's exactly what's happening and it's exactly what the evil one wants to see happen. Well, Paul then transitions uh, in this section of verses to verse 15, to talk about childbearing. The verse 15 has perplexed many scholars for a century. What does Paul mean when he says that a woman will be saved through childbearing? Is he now talking about being saved by good works, instead of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone? Is that what's happening? not at all. John Calvin is helpful here. He says this, first, here the apostle does not speak merely about having children, but about enduring all the distresses which are manifold and severe, both in the birth and in the rearing of children. Is it hard to have children and raise them? Raise your hand. Yes. That's part of what he's talking about here. Secondly, Whatever hypocrites or wise men of the world may think of it, when a woman considering to that which she's been called submits to the condition which God has assigned to her and does not refuse to endure the pains or rather the fearful anguish or anxiety about her offspring or anything else that belongs to her duty, God values this obedience more highly than if in some other manner she made a great display of heroic virtues while she refused to obey the calling of God. What does that mean? It means that God wants us, men and women, specifically in the context of verse 15 here, he's talking about women, to just humbly submit to the Lord, obediently submit to the Lord. And it's a a heart attitude, is it not? That changes, yes, who we are on the outside, but it's a heart attitude. That wants to humbly submit in obedience to the Lord. So we see in this passage from 1 Timothy that men and women have important roles in the life of the church. There are restrictions given to women, but there's also reasons that we just discussed. There's one final passage. Is there? I don't have much time, do I? <laughs> Let me go through this. See if I can do this in about four or five minutes. One final passage, 1 Corinthians 11. 3 through 16. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her hair, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, some of you may be saying right now, okay, Kevin, it's like 1043, and you're going to talk about head covering. (laughs) Yes, I am, but briefly, let's get into that. So there's three things, just three principles I want us to look at. It'll take about three or four minutes. Let's go through it. First, God expects women to serve publicly in the church by praying and prophesying. I'm not saying prophesying by predicting the future and future events, but I'm saying prophesying in that they are to be encouraging with their words, speaking truth from God's word to others. Women are to pray as they feel led in Sunday school, in prayer meeting, in women's Bible studies and circles. Secondly, we see in this passage that God, God calls women to serve in the church in a way that glorifies God's design of biblical femininity. In verses 14 through 15, is Paul really saying that it's more biblical for a woman to have long hair? Well, the answer is no. Long hair in that culture was to be a differentiating quality between male and female. Not really so in our culture today. So should Christian women wear head coverings today. Some well-meaning, earnest Christians believe so. But Paul is writing here to a specific culture who believed that head covering was a specific sign for women who showed holiness. In our culture today, we really don't have a garment that says, I'm happy to be a woman who accepts the authority of my husband and of the elders according to God's design. That's what the head covering was reflecting We don't really have a garment in today's culture to show that or reflect that. So what do we do? Well, in today's time, a woman may show respect to her husband uh, by building him up, by encouraging him, by speaking highly of him. If she has a concern about the church, uh, she goes to her husband and talks about that particular matter first. It's more about the attitude, again, of the heart which comes across in her speech and actions. Thirdly, and lastly, this text teaches that male authority in the church does not invalidate the equality of interdependence. Paul writes in verses 11 through 12, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So this is going to go back to where we began last time at the beginning, These passages today encourage us to look at Scripture as God's inerrant Holy Word, but also encourages us to look at men and women in the context of the home and the context of a local church in complementary ways. So we believe that firmly that God made man and woman in His image equal standing before God but there's distinctions, and the distinctions are given so that we complement one another, and the context of a local church so that the people of God will be built up and encouraged in their faith. When we embrace, here's what it comes down to, when we embrace and are content with our God-given gender, then this leads to peace and harmony in the home, in the local church, And this will ultimately bring God glory and honor. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And there are times when we read passages that are difficult to understand uh, or that are hard to receive even. Uh, Father, help us to look more into these passages in the coming weeks. And help us to think through it thoughtfully and carefully, living out our distinctive roles as men and women in ways that will bring honor to your name, in ways that will glorify you, in ways that will build up the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.